You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with stars, creators, and industry leaders on Broadway and beyond. I'm Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to the actor Deidre O'Connell. A lot of theatergoers, especially those who aren't in New York, might not have heard of O'Connell and her work before she won the 2022 Tony Award for Best Actress for her work in Lucas Nath's play Dana H. But for regular off-Broadway theatergoers, O'Connell has been a favorite for some 40 years, known for performances that feel effortlessly alive, idiosyncratic, and authentic, and often emotionally devastating. She got her equity card in a Sam Shepard play, The Unseen Hand, at the venerable downtown experimental theater institution La Mama in 1982, and has seemingly worked nonstop ever since, mostly off-Broadway, in shows like Annie Baker's Circle Mirror Transformation and Lisa Crone's In the Wake. Dana H., the play that won her a Tony, was only her third Broadway credit. In a year that has already seen her win that Tony and star off-Broadway in Will Arbery's play Corsicana, this winter she's back on stage again in Sarah Rule's new comedy, Becky Nurse of Salem. Coming to the end of her very busy 2022, O'Connell is in the virtual studio with me to talk character, process, and how winning the Tony Award didn't change her life, and why she's more than okay with that. Hi, Didi. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Gordon. Thank you for having me. So you're finishing off 2022 in Becky Nurse of Salem, and it comes after another stage role in Will Arbery's Corsicana, and of course, your Tony Award for Dana H. Were there any similarities or maybe concordances that you found in any of these roles or these plays that you uh, were in over the last, you know, 12 to 16 months? That's interesting. It's sort of, it's sort of, no. The the fact that the answer is no, it, it feels, it feels like three very extremely different uh, experiences Mm. in terms of sort of restraint and release and the way that I, the way that one feels exposed and the way that one feels, it's, it's been really interestingly a wide variety. It feels like as if I'm, I don't know, if I was a musician, one would have been like a marching band and the other one would have been like a, a quiet solo and the other one would have been, yeah. They, mm-hmm. So, I mean, the ladies all look similar. I have noticed. <laughs> right. <laughs> they have yeah. similar hairdos. Yeah. <laughs> Probably should work on that. Yeah. They, you know, when I see pictures, I'm like, I look just like I looked in that. <laughs> but if I don't think about what they look like, the experience, each experience has been wildly different than the others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that there are similarities in the roles that you tend to be attracted to? Like, can you characterize the kind of, or if not the kind of roles, then the kind of work that uh, you are attracted to? Well, I, I, I usually probably like to be challenged. So I like to do something that I can't quite see how it works, where um, 
I'm, I'm, uh, there's a mystery there that I have to solve or something I've never quite done before or a, a curiosity about how this person's life is or, or the task of doing the, of doing the play itself. So, so there's that, they have yeah. that in common. I have to say with Becky, yeah. you know, the idea that Becky was going to be something that I had never done before was something I let go of very fast. Like she's, Wearing clothes like I've played many characters who wear hoodies and have their hair up in a thing. <laughs> it was like Becky. I know how Becky. What Becky looks like. She wears a hoodie. I have a lot of them left over from a lot of plays. We could choose some of those. Yeah. So it was like, let there was a a way that in some ways I felt like there's a lot of parts I've played that were getting me ready to get to do this part. Like there's a lot of um, I worked on a play of Lucy Thurber's. I. Mm. There's, is she, she's somebody that I've been sort of like um, um, moving toward for a long time. This is Sarah, Sarah or Becky, you're talking Becky, about. Becky, Becky, yeah. yeah. Sarah Rolls play Becky. Yeah. And, and so what specifically, as you were moving toward it, what, what appealed to you when it finally arrived? What was it about the piece and the part that really spoke to you? Um, well, I'm from Mass. Mm. I'm from a small city in Massachusetts. The, the the person that it's about and the world that it's about was very familiar to me. And I felt like Sarah had captured that lightning in a bottle, but in a very, in a very like particular and odd and magical theatrical container. And I, and, but I, but I knew the world she was talking about really well, cause it's, it's what I grew up in. Mm. And the, yeah. And the, and the, the terrible things about those those towns and the wonderful things about those towns were all kind of in this play, um, and the you know what it what it what it's like to be that toughened and that defensive and yet that open spirited at the same time, and to be still still struggling to find love and to be still still willing to be in that struggle in spite of the, being you know very shut down in a lot of ways there was just a lot of things about her that felt very um yeah i was i was i was just very drawn to to becky yeah. and becky's struggle with her grandkid and with her sorrow and with her rage i felt like there i've watched a lot of people Kind of, and and experienced it myself. Where if you if you love somebody who's an addict, and you lose them, you know, in one way or another, either they they die or or they they just are lost to you. There's a lot of rage and there's a lot of shutdown that happens. And I and I feel like part of what the play does, it's it's kind of like works as a pageant play for people who are going through that. I feel like it works as a as a journey about that kind of. Um, inability to empathize um, and then the enormous respect that Becky comes to have for her daughter and the and then the, the sorrow she's able to feel because she respects her daughter as opposed to just you know feeling the feeling that you one one feels which is rage and abandoned <laughs> mm. if that 
that makes sense. Yeah, well, my next question was actually because Sarah Rule, the playwright, takes on a lot in the play. I was going to ask yes. you what your take on what the play is about. Like when people ask you, what's the play yeah, about? Yeah, I say? mean, that, I, it is about a lot of things. Mm. And that is one of the amazing things that Sarah does is she does not settle. She's like, I have all of these. I have. I feel like there's a confluence. There's a magical confluence. And if I put all of these these things in the brew, it will cook up to this to this really rich soup. And you know, each and I think each person finds it finds a different way in. For me that was the most vivid part of the story um, in my life. So that that was the mo the the journey with the granddaughter in them and the daughter. But the stuff about the Salem Witch Trials and the stuff about witchcraft in general and the sort of place of which of magic and witchcraft in our lives where it might give you the courage to do something that you wouldn't be able to do on your own. If you think that you can make a spell that's a love spell, mm. you might have a little more courage about inviting the guy you're crazy about over to your house or going to visit him in his bar and putting the magic spell in there might give you that that little burst of courage. And I think she's writing about that too in a mm. kind of great way that I've also experienced a little bit of. But <laughs> the the um and the and the idea that there is a sort of uh, uh, at the center of the mystery of what happened that provoked the Salem witch trials what is that event what is the what is the um the impenetrable veil that we cannot get through i can't get through anyway myself that answers the question, what happened? What did it feel like to be those girls? What did it feel like to be those women? What was happening to them? We don't really know the answer to that question, and it and it makes me think about the impenetrable veil of history, of like how we perceive history when so much of it is written with a very particular bent. And so for women, for... The, it, it's it's there is not a lot of writing to help us understand what it was like to be them and we have to use our imaginations and we also have to accept that we won't really know the answer to the question so she she's grappling with that and but she is also sort of finding in the core of that um grappling the idea of people who are overwhelmed with the physical, she, the sheer difficulty of the life that they're living and the amount of sorrow that they're having to carry. You know, the, all the, all the uh, kids dying, the, the uh, difficulty of, of starting that damn Salem Township being part of why so much madness was able to sort of find its way into their lives and, and how we're in a similar situation now in that same place. In that same exact spot, that it, she just, she just was really interested in those those how how those two things resonate with each other, mm. yeah. particularly for women and moms and people who've lost or or enduring great loss and don't understand how they found themselves here. Mm. So anyway, yeah, and all, yeah. So it's it's the sort of the veil and like what. And the, and the question of what occurred and how we answer that question and how Arthur Miller answered that question and 
how particular that that the that answer is, and yet how it's become like kind of the one that we accept. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. You seem to gravitate toward new plays and new work as opposed to sort of classics and revivals. At least that's the things that I've seen you in most often. Is that a conscious decision on your part? I I guess it must be. Um, I don't. I I. Uh, yeah, I I do really really like writers and I like writing and I'm really curious about how each each piece of theater works and how each thing uh, uh, sort of takes 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 the way that we experience watching a play to a different spot. So I guess I and I love new writers. So I think it is a conscious decision. Um, I suppose if I'd been a person who had ended up getting to do a lot of Shakespeare, maybe I would have had that life. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this one. <laughs> I think, I think I do like the living writers. You know, every yeah. once in a while, I'm like, I wish this writer wasn't living, because they're giving me all these rewrites. Like, what? It, wouldn't it be nice if this, if this was Shakespeare or Chekhov? But, um, but I think I think I actually love the process. I love the process of rehearsing, and I love the process of somebody grappling and figuring something out as we're going along. So yeah. Do you have a sense of how you, as an actor, contribute to that process of them grappling with it? Like, what what? How, in pretty, what ways are you? I'm a tool? pretty aggressive in my old age. I have to say. <laughs> I mean, I think I used to. I, I think that my instincts about my gut instincts have gotten pretty honed in terms of going like, whoop, we're, we're off the beam. We're not, we're not making sense anymore. Or we're asking too much of this moment. Or we're, or we're putting, these, these two scenes are canceling each other out. Or mm. my, my gut about those kinds of things has gotten pretty good. So I'm pretty good, if you want to have a sounding board about that stuff, I'm pretty good to to uh, raise my hand and say, hey, 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 this hurts. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I think this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But, um, and in this process with Becky Nurse, um, Rebecca and Sarah and I talked a lot and talked a lot for months before we actually started working so that I had had a lot of thoughts and feelings about just how the how the play worked and you know, some of those found their way into it. I there are processes where I'm not where my I just kind of can um, shut up and see and see how the thing unfolds. I feel like with Corsicana, I did not do a lot of like, here's Miss Bossy Pants with a bunch of ideas. Sam Gold, who I love and who I'm friends with, and I don't really do that. Hmm. Sam's 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 in in a different sort of. Uh, He's more of a mysterious director to me, and I'm curious about what he's seeing, and I, and I wait until he knows how to tell me what he's seeing. But so it's a, it, I'm a, I'm much more. I sit back. I don't I don't I don't blabbermouth with him as much. I blabbermouth a lot with these with these ladies, and it was fun to do both. Yeah. Um, I'm I like both processes, and they're very different from each other. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like one's shutting me down and the other one's opening me up. I feel like I feel like. Uh, yeah, they're just very different. They're just very different. They were just very curious about like what it felt like for me hmm. yeah. to be to be Becky. And did this did this follow from this? 
exactly and stuff. So I was I was in there more talking. I'll have more with Deidre O'Connell right after the break. Hey, it's the new year. Maybe you're like me, and you've spent the holidays eating all of the Christmas cookies and drinking eggnog and coquito every single night for the last month. Perhaps you've set a new fitness goal, or maybe just decided you should eat a vegetable now and then. Get started on your resolutions with Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success. Skip the grocery stores, the prep work, and the cooking fatigue, and instead get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. There are more than 35 meals to choose from each week, including options like keto and calorie smart and vegan and veggie and more, plus more than 55 weekly add-ons, so you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. I actually have experience with Factor from even before they took out an ad on this podcast. I got Factor for my mother, who lives alone, and she hates to cook, but she needs to eat. So I know about all the advantages that come with Factor, including there's no more frantic meal prep or rushed, unappetizing dinner. Because Factor's two-minute meals can help you fuel up fast with restaurant-quality food delivered right to your door. There's also loads of options beyond lunch and dinner, including smoothies and juices and breakfasts and snacks and anything you might want any time of day. Factor is cheaper and more delicious and usually a lot healthier than takeout. And they're super easy. Their chef-crafted restaurant-quality meals are ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. There's also a lot of flexibility, and this is key because nobody's life looks exactly the same from week to week. With Factor, you can change your order up every week. You can choose between 4 and 18 meals a week, or you can pause or you can reschedule your deliveries anytime. If you're looking for a special occasion meal or you just want to treat yourself, there's Gourmet Plus for when you're looking for fast upscale options done easily. They've also got Keto Meals and those Protein Plus meals to help you stay on track with your New Year's goals. Factor has everything you need for a week of flavorful, nutritious eats. In addition to ready-to-eat meals, they have cold-pressed juices, energy bites, extra protein, veggie sides, and more to keep you energized when life gets busy. Head to factormeals.com stagecraft50 and use code stagecraft50 to get 50% off. That's code stagecraft50 at factormeals.com stagecraft50 to get 50% off. And now, here's more with the actor Deidre O'Connell. You also work in film and TV pretty regularly. You had a role in the series Outer Range on Amazon Prime earlier this year. I uh, do, yes. But, but stage appears to be your home, at least to those of us uh, in the theater. Is that is that right? Would you say that? I would say that. I feel like um, partly it's, you just you just uh, learn learn to have a, I don't know, a more instinctive uh, instinctive touch with something that you get to do a lot. Mm-hmm. And being in front of the camera and being on set, it's you just don't log that many hours unless you do a bunch of series, which I actually have. Mm-hmm. But I there's a weird I there's a, I you know, I think about this. I think about why why is it that I I'm so much more attracted to stage, and stage is hard. Yeah. So you know, there's days when I get up. Doesn't morning, pay like, as well. Why yeah. did I want to do this? <laughs> I am so scared. I'm not a person who doesn't have stage fright. I do. You know, like it's not like yay, I get me out there. I'm like filled with dread, just like anybody. Mm. So it's like why, why, why this and not that? But it partly has to do with they think I'm like in a struggle with being an introverted person who's like forcing herself into 
being in relation to humans and then uh, searching for a moment when you're not self-conscious, searching for a moment when like the task is so big, the, the feelings that you're working with are so big, the, the thing is so fine that you, that you find that moment where you're not self-conscious. And I think that that's my struggle and search. And I rarely can feel that in front of a camera. I feel like the camera is just kind of like eating the moments and that that it's also it's also that as an actor in the theater you're more in in control of the making of the piece of art you know like ultimately the rhythm of it the the way the story gets told is down to you you have to you of course you collaborate with your collaborators to figure out what those rules are going to be and how to get that tone you you discuss it endlessly and tr really try to find it. But once you've found it, then it's down to you to do it every day. And that doesn't happen with, with film because you're, you're, ju you're just one of the cogs in the wheel of it. So it's rare that I've felt that feeling of release, you know, that, that weird joyful release in a, on a movie set. And how have you thought about uh, Broadway over the course of your career. It can be a surprise to some people, you know, who've seen you on stage for years that, oh, Dana H was only your third time on Broadway, but I've seen you in all these shows, you know, as you, you know, if you're not really thinking about it. What, did, was it ever a location that was particularly meaningful to you and a thing you wanted to get to or wanted to do more of or didn't care about? What was your, what was your relationship to it? I think I, I, I don't think I cared about it that much. Yeah. I, you know, I've always been scared of those uh, contracts that say that you'll do something for a year or two. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of those Broadway contracts say that. Yeah. So the times when I've, when I've been like, you know, I should audition to be uh, in Wicked or I should audition to be in, in, and I would look at the real situation and I'd be like, oh, they will require you to sign a piece of paper that says you're going to be there for a year. That And I would just balk. Mm. So it was partly that. Um, it's partly being not, not a singer. So if I, if I'd been a singer, probably it would have been more, uh, something that seemed like, oh, this, that would be a blast to like, you know, to sing some songs on Broadway. Mm. But there is a, there just aren't that many straight plays that go to Broadway. And so I'm, right. I'm a, you know, straight play actor. Yeah. Yeah. But I have thought about it, like, what if I was a singer? Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. And then, so it's not really a prejudice against it at all. It just has to do with scared of those long contracts mm. and there not being a huge number of opportunities, but that didn't really bother me that much. I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm getting ripped off. I want to be on Broadway. I didn't feel that way about it. Yeah. I was scared of those big houses too. I'm less scared of them now, but I was scared of those big houses. I feel like there's something about when your body is so small in the person's, the people's eyes, you know, like when they're sitting so far away, it's very odd. It's like, I, I, I do like a smaller room in general. Yeah. But then when we were working on Day and H in the Lyceum, I realized that those rooms are beautifully made. You know, most of them are made so that the focus is very, very precise. Yeah. And not that many people especially for Dana H, sat that far away. But there was the option of sitting very far away and having me be like a tiny dot. And that felt crazy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. N now that you have been 
living as Tony Award winner Deidre O'Connor for the uh, O'Connell, excuse me, for the last um, six months more. Um, do you have a sense of what that has have has that shifted anything for you? Has it brought opportunities or uh, a feeling it about what's happening? It has not done. No, it hasn't. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Well, I mean, I, it's fine with me. I'm yep. very, I'm very happy doing this. And and this, I knew I was going to do this before that happened. So I, I, I feel like um, this is exactly what I would have wanted to have happen. This, if this had happened right after I got the Tony, I would have been like, I got to do Becky Nurse of Salem because of the Tony. But because I technically know that's not true because mm. I got the offer, you know, a month before. Right. So. I feel like I, I've landed exactly where I would have wanted to. This play, doing this play is like being in a crazy dream sequence. I couldn't believe it was there when I first read it. I couldn't believe Sarah had written this beautiful, beautiful thing and that I was going to get to do it. So I feel like, yeah, I'm exactly where I want to be. But in terms of there being like people calling me up and saying, will you come and do this and will you come and do that? I, I am not experiencing that. It may be... You know, just the age I am is just not going to be quite like the magical, the magic bullet. But I, I'm right now. I'm fine. I, yeah. I don't. I'm not like going like. I'm not sad about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did winning the Tony influence how you felt personally about your career, or how you like? Did it have any sort of personal effect? I, on I, how guess, you it it. I yeah. guess it must. I guess it must. I mean. It's so hard to, it, I, I have, it's not like I think about it differently. Um, but I, I'm, I might, maybe I'm, maybe it helps you with confidence or something. I'm not sure, but it also, you know, it does both things. It makes you feel more confident, but it also makes you feel more exposed. Like, yeah. you know, maybe I, 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 I'm, I'm more comfortable being a dark horse in some ways. I don't know. It's like, um, but it, that part hasn't been, like when I first got it and we were doing Corsicana, which I don't know if you saw, but it was yeah. a very quiet. It's very quiet. <laughs> quiet, very, very like contained play. And my first entrance was like, I was just supposed to go stand by the wall. And I just go stand quietly by the wall mm. and do nothing for, I don't know, a full minute while the, the audience was just supposed to sit there and look at us, do nothing for a full minute. Well, when I came in and there was entrance applause for the first time after the tour, it's like, no, 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 this isn't going to work. I'm in a piece of art that does not want entrance applause. So, and then, and then after a couple of days it stopped, but I was like, is this what's going to happen? And then there was a, and there was a vibe in the audience where like I would open my mouth and say something and they would laugh and it wasn't funny. And I was kind of like, this is crazy. Is this what it's going to be like now? And it went away like within three days. But they were all like, she won a Tony. She must be funny. It was very odd because that wasn't the way that play worked. But the entrance applause was cracked me up because it really was like we were doing this very quiet, very odd, beautiful piece of experimental theater. Mm, Right. With Becky Nurse. You know that 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 works. It's okay. It's okay that they are like yay, and then I'm like okay, but I'm not her. I'm Becky Nurse now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got your start in experimental theater, um, which it feels like to thinking about it. Dana H kind of harkens back to in particular because Dana H is, is a really sort of experimental kind of technical challenge that I feel like you could see at La Mama if when, you didn't see when, it. When uh, when when 
Lucas was trying to explain to me how it was going to be. And then my memory of watching um, Rumstick Road at the Wooster Group Mm. was, I mean, and I saw it like five times and I loved it so much. And there was one moment in it when, it is Rumstick Road, that um, Ron Vodder, who was one of the great actors of our time, who is no longer with us, um, lip synced. He lip synced with a conversation with Spaulding's mother's. No, it was a conversation with Spaulding, and he, and Ron was playing Spaulding's uh, mom's psychiatrist, and uh, wow. Spaulding had recorded the conversation. Ha ha! And Ron was playing it, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing, and it was maybe a three-minute scene, and I just couldn't understand how they had made it, and I couldn't believe what Ron was doing. Mm. It was like the my, my my chair fell from under me. I I felt like uh, whooshed into another world of what acting could be. And I didn't understand the first time I saw it, like what I was seeing and then gradually I was like, oh, it must be that he's lip syncing and then gradually, you know, because I saw it a bunch of times. Mm. And I said to Lucas, I, I know what you're talking about, but the only time I've seen it was this one moment, and Lucas said, I know exactly the moment you're talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. He's much younger, so he never saw it in person. Yeah. But he said, I own the film of it, and I've watched that moment over and over again. That's what I'm talking about. So that was completely how we connected, because yeah. I was, yeah. I know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, then, I was, then I was his meat, you know. Then, <laughs> and then I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to invest the next four years of my life in learning how to do this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you have a sense of how your grounding in more experimental theater, particularly earlier in your career, has sort of uh, served you as you moved into what we would consider more traditional theater? Um, well, maybe, maybe the what we consider to be more traditional theater is also shifted a lot, mm. yeah. you know, in the direction of, for example, Dan H, you know, like, right. and even Sarah's writing, there, mm. there's so, there's so many um, real, real uh, delicate questions about tone mm. with this piece that I feel like, uh, it, it, I'm not, you can't take anything for granted about what a writer, the tone that a writer is looking for let you know less and less it's not like we all are writing the same kind of thing or we're all i mean they're the writing that we're all there are there are i think i feel like the experimental theater is kind of bled into the mm. into the straight theater or whatever you want to call it the yeah. more commercial theater at the same time as i've sort of gotten to do it so it's funny it's not like um Yeah, it's not like I feel like there's a huge a huge difference. Yeah. And what did you learn in particular from the uh, kind of huge technical challenge of Dana H and marrying that with like kind of acting challenge of it? Like how is there, was there a particular insight that uh, really struck you from working that way? It, it, it was, it, in order to be able to do it, I had to surrender so completely to this moment to moment of it. And it's a thing that you think of as an actor and you think you're going to do that. You think you're doing that and you want to be doing that. But 
the technical requirements of being an actor on stage, breathing your own breath and using your own voice and working moment to moment and being with the audience and letting them respond, it, it's very different thing than being in that in the in the in the tightness that I. It must be like being a concert pianist. You don't pause because the audience uh, is applauding in the middle of a piece. The piece has its own requirements. So I had never done anything. Or, or maybe it's like being a dancer too. I had never done anything where the exact counts of it, the exact timing of it was not going to be my breath. It was somebody else's breath and I had to merge with it. And therefore, I had to be completely able to not have a moment where I had doubt. You know, like if I, if I went off for a second, I didn't have that other second to go like, oh man, I went off, what a drag. I had to just be like, forgive yourself and keep going. There was no time for that other voice that where, where you start to get thrown. And that technical task forced me to do that kind of surrendering, which I think I've always wanted to be able to do and never, you know, you, you, can't, you can't fake a problem like that. <laughs> yeah. What do you know now uh, that you wish you had known when you were first starting out? Oh, boy, I don't know. Well, um, that there would be parts, that there would keep being parts. I think when I started out, um, it seemed like there was going to be, a, it was a short, much shorter shelf life for a woman to be able to have great things to do. And that has changed during the time that I've been at, acting and I think partly and I don't really know why I think partly because more and more women's voices are in the in the world and the more and more women are directing more and more women are writing and so the stories of women who are not young they're just more in our you know they're, they're what we want to see they're what we're writing so I didn't have to sort of cram it all in before I was whatever, 45, which mm. I thought I would. Mm. So I would like to be able to go back and say to her, you, you're going to be okay. You're going to be able to keep doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, as this past year has uh, indicated, you work all the time. What's next for you after uh, Becky? I don't know. Oh, really? I'm going to rest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have no idea. It's not, I'm not kidding. I'm not being like, uh, being like a cagey here. I mm. actually have no idea. And I'm sort of, I'm sort of okay with that. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm going to, rest and breathe for a second yeah well we can't wait to see you on stage in the next thing whenever it comes around and of course uh in becky nurse which is running through the end of the year um thanks so much to you it was great to talk to you it was great to talk to you too that was deidre o'connell from becky nurse of salem now playing at lincoln center theater If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us grow our audience of folks who love theater as much as you and I do. Or tell a friend about StageCraft, or give us a shout-out on social media. Find past episodes and subscribe at all the pod purveyors, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. Until next episode, find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening, and see you at the theater.
Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.